Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in their own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as a pastor, I know how important, how critical this passage is. But I confess that for all of us, for many of us at least, it's a strange passage. It seems very disconnected from our everyday lives. So Lord, I ask that this morning you would help us to get it. With all sincerity, I pray that through this Bible reading this morning, we would change the way we live because we have understood the impact of this reading of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray all this. Amen. Now, I've uh, shared this story with with some of you. I don't think I've ever shared it from the pulpit before because it's a a little crazy. Um, So if you've heard this before... Just bear with me. But it was almost exactly 13 years ago when I had had a a very major life-shaping moment. Laura and I were in a happy time of dreaming about our future. We had been married for just under two years. Our wedding rings were still shiny. We still had the honeymoon glow about us. We were kid-free, carefree, and praying for God's direction in our lives. We had just finished up our seminary time. Um, Laura and I both got our Master's of Divinity um, degrees from Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and we felt trained, we felt impassioned, we felt ready to impact the world for the cause of Christ. We were young, we were ambitious, we were ready. For the, past, uh, for the previous two years, we'd been helping to start um, this new CRC church plant that was taking roots in the western suburbs of Boston 
and people were coming to Christ. And we just felt this excitement about God's church. And we felt the hope that the local church is indeed God's answer to the problems that, that uh, humanity face. And that's the background, okay? Now I want to zoom in to this one experience I had this Sunday evening. <clears throat> oh, I want to mention one, one other thing. This is very key. Um, while we were still in seminary, while we were helping out this church plant, Christian Reformed Church Home Missions um, were, were courting us. They were wooing Laura and I. We were, you know, a married couple. We both had MDivs, and, and uh, um, you know, they, they were trying to get us to, to sign up. And we were sort of denominationally homeless. We were like reformed because of our reformed seminary upbringing, but we, we hadn't committed to a denomination yet. And so Christian Reformed Church home missions were, were wooing us. But the number one roadblock between um, us and, and them w- was that e- even though we just finished seminary, even though we just got our MDiv from a, a very good conservative seminary, but because it wasn't Calvin's seminary, in order, us, in order for us to for me to pursue ordination in the CRC, we'd have to uproot from where we are, move to Grand Rapids, spend a year there, and do another year seminary. And um, honestly, more than the, the moving, more than the um, you know, uprooting, more than the extra year seminary, um, the biggest thing in that obstacle for me was my own pride. I was like, look, I just finished, I just fully funded an MDiv. It's a good MDiv. Um, you know, excellent Reformed p- professors. If it's not good enough for you, you know, young, prideful, huh? And so that's how I was feeling. And so that's the background of this life-changing moment. Now, I want to zoom into a particular Sunday evening. Laura and I were sitting in our living room, um, both reading our Bibles and praying, but, you know, apart from one another. She was on the couch, and I was on this uh, chair in the corner. I remember it very distinctly. And uh, this morning, that, that's the, the sermon that morning had been on Gideon and how God wanted him to do some, something that Gideon didn't want to do himself. And so Gideon asks for a major sign. Now, if you grew up in the church, if you went to Sunday school, this is a very famous passage. Gideon asked for a major sign. Actually, he asked for two major signs. He said, God, if, if this is really you calling me to this, if you really want me to do this, I'm going to put out this fleece, this, this, this piece of cloth, this, this you know, woolly fleece, and I'm going to leave it out there overnight. And I want you to uh, keep it dry. So... When the, all the grass, you know, all the ground is wet from the dew, I want that, that fleece to be bone dry. And so sure enough, Gideon wakes up the ne- next morning, there's dew everywhere, everything is soaked, the fleece is bone dry. You can't wring anything out of it. There's no moisture on it or in it. And then Gideon says, all right, all right, just to see, just in case that was a fluke, I want you to do the opposite, God. I want you to make everything completely dry, but that fleece I want to be sopping wet. And so he goes to bed, he wakes up the next day. And the fleece is sopping wet. He can wring water. Water pours out of it, but everywhere else is dry. And so um, I thought, if it works for Gideon, it could work for me. And so I closed my eyes and I prayed, God, if you want us to pack up and move to Grand Rapids and attend Calvin Seminary, please make the lights go out. And then I opened my eyes and I looked around, and Laura looked at me and said, what are you doing? 
And so I said, I just prayed that God would shut the lights off if he wanted us to go to Calvin Seminary. She looked at me and said, you're an idiot. <laughs> no, she, she, she actually didn't say that, but I know she was thinking that. What she actually said was something like, I don't think God works that way, Mike. Anyway, I carried on that night hoping that the lights would go out. And then I woke up the next morning hoping that the lights wouldn't go back on. But no sale. And I got into work early that next morning, and I turned on the lights, fired up the coffee machine, turned on the computer, and then the senior pastor came in, and he fired up his computer. And we, went to, we were renting this office space at the time in this office mall that uh, had this like sort of indoor common area with plants and stuff, and then all around the square inside was uh, maybe a dozen more so office spaces. There was a dentist and, and a little retail shop. And, and uh, so he gets in, he turns on his computer, we sit down, and no sooner do we sit down that, boom, the power goes out, the lights go off, and there's no electricity in our office. We're like, what's going on? We step out of the office, and the hallway, the, uh, the mall lights are all on. All the other lights and all the other the power in every other office suite is on. And Chris says, uh, you know, I can't understand what's going on. And I sheepishly said, I think this is my fault. <laughs> and then I explained to him what I had prayed the previous night. And he laughed out loud, and he got on the phone, and he called Laura and said, ye of little faith. <laughs> and uh, we, we went to the breaker, you know, flicked the breaker switch, nothing. And the janitor came over, couldn't fix it. In fact, we, the, uh, the version of ComEd had to come and restore power to, the, to our office. I tell you that story. It's a crazy story. It's a true story. I lived it firsthand. But I tell you because it happened only because of what took place on that Pentecost day, that first Pentecost day. It happened because of that Old Testament prof prophecy that was given some 800 years old, 800 years earlier in the book of Joel had just been fulfilled in, in the book of Acts. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And because of that first Pentecost, I have God's presence in me. And because I have God's presence in me, I can talk to God. I can tell him my worries, my fears, my anxieties. I can do crazy, dumb things like say, God, if you want me to do this, if you're calling me to do this, shut the lights off. God's presence with us changes everything. I want to look at this, and I want to apply this to our lives, but first let me give you some of the biblical significance of this passage, and then we'll see how Pentecost, that Pentecost reality not only totally changed the, the, uh, the reality of Jesus' followers then, but it totally changes our reality today as followers of Christ. Let's start with verse 1. <clears throat> it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they, Jesus' followers, were all together in one place. Now, the key here is that word Pentecost. And uh, I know you've probably heard this before. It, it, it's from the Greek, uh, two Greek words, penta, which is 50th, and kos, which is day. The 50th day. And uh, meaning it's, it's the Jewish celebration of 50 days after Passover. It's a celebration that has a social significance and a religious significance. Now track with me for a second. I'm going to get a little bit historical cultural, but hang on. We're about to strike gold, Okay. The social side of the celebration was the celebration of the end of the harvest period. 
Now, remember, it was a very agriculturally dependent society. And so if there was no harvest, that meant life was on the line. If there was no harvest or, or no big harvest, people would suffer. Famine would occur. And so this was a huge celebration. It was like a 4th of July weekend. There was much celebration. It was a big festival, a week-long festival, uh, maybe even longer. People offered up grain offerings in the temple to God. It was a time to thank God for his blessings, thank God for his provisions. But then there was a religious significance to this. On the religious side of things, the 50th day after that very first Passover had a major life-changing relationship with... uh, a major life-changing influence on how people related to God. So, Pentecost was a celebration of not only God's faithfulness through the harvest, but it was a celebration of um, what occurred during that 50th day after that first Passover. Does that make sense? Do you remember what the first Passover was? The first Passover, you know, even if you um, uh, haven't grown up in the church at all... We don't have vocalists coming back up here, I don't think. Even after, um, uh, after that very first Passover, the first Passover was <clears throat> the, the Egyptians are stuck in slavery. I mean, the Israelites are stuck in slavery in Egypt. And God is trying to, um, is about to free them from slavery. 400 years of slavery. And uh, he, he provides nine miraculous um, events, you, uh, you know, Eventually, there's ten plagues, but he had just performed nine miraculous event, events, but Pharaoh still wouldn't let the Israelites be free. He still wouldn't let them go. And so he's, God is doing one more event, and he's sending the angel of death onto the land. And it's called Passover because unless you took the blood of a lamb... If you sacri- unless you sacrificed the lamb and took the blood of the lamb and point, put it at, and, and uh, spread it on the, the, uh, the doorposts, the angel of death would not pass over you. But if you had the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, the angel of death would pass over you. And so after that tenth plague, Pharaoh, Pharaoh finally said, I give, I give, your God is great. Go, go leave. And so that very first Passover, God delivers them. The angel of death literally um, delivers them out of slavery and into a new relationship with God. And 50 days after that first Passover, what happened? Anybody know? Yeah. 50 days after the Passover, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And uh, this, this is important. We're almost there. Hang with me. We're almost there. And so God gives them written law, written guidance, written instructions. And for the first time in the history of the human race, people now have something tangible. It's a more clearer guidelines to how God relates to his people. Now, the Ten Commandments weren't um, a, 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 a gateway. It's, it's not like God said, hey... Follow the Ten Commandments and you can be in relationship with me. No, the relationship came first. God said, you are my people and therefore I am giving you the law. I'm giving you the Ten Commandments. And, hold on a second, I have to fast forward here. 
The Ten Commandments were a completely new, more clear, more tangible way showing how God relates to his people. It was evidence of a relationship with God. It was the guiding means of God's relationship with his people. That first Passover and Pentecost had incredible significance for God and his creation. It was a turning point in the story, the rescue story. Now people could know God more specifically through his word. Fast forward to Acts. So we have that first Passover, that first Pentecost. And then, while it's not the last Passover and Pentecost, it, it's really the, 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 the most significant end Passover and Pentecost. Just 50 days prior to the Pentecost story that we just read, that Passover was when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. And there's amazing parallels between that first Passover and that last Passover. In that first Passover, God freed the people from the tyranny of slavery in Egypt. In that last Passover, Jesus Christ frees the people from the tyranny of sin and death. In that first Pentecost, God says, I'll give you my law. And through my law, you will know me. And in that last Pentecost, God says, I'm going to fulfill my law in you by giving you my presence. Are you there yet with me? On that day of Passover, Jesus said, I am the Lamb of God, given to you to take away the sins of people. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection... Never again will our selfishness, our ego, our ill-managed desires, and all other sins that trip us up, no longer will they separate us from God. No longer will uh, will we be enslaved to sin. On that Passover, Jesus delivers us from sin and death and reunites us with God. Jesus says to us, here's your heavenly Father, your creator and sustainer. And God says to us, my people, my children. Easter Sunday establishes a new dynamic of relationship with God. And then 50 days later, after that incredible Passover where Jesus dies on the cross and then resurrects the uh, the following Sunday, 50 days later, just as God exploded the sacrificial system through the cross, God explodes the legalistic religious system by pouring out his spirit upon everyone that Pentecost. Verse 2 and 3 says this, Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. Now these two verses are dripping with Old Testament symbolism for God's presence. And I want to highlight just one of those symbolism, uh, symbols, fire. God uses fire in several key places to symbolize his presence with his people. The first one is a, very, uh, is a lesser known one, but very important event when God makes his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. God's presence appears as a fire pot with a blazing torch. Then again, 
in Exodus, you remember files, uh, when, when, when uh, God calls Moses, fire settles on this bush, the burning bush, and it doesn't consume it. And God speaks to Moses, and his presence is symbolized by the fire that is around that bush. Then again, when God leads the people out of, uh, out of slavery, out of Egypt, he guides them by a cloud during the day and an, a pillar of what during night? Fire. Oftentimes, and there's a bunch more references I can give, oftentimes God symbolizes his presence by fire. The point is that when God's presence, as symbolized by fire, showed up and settled in on the people, the verb literally means to sit in. It's a verb that we would use when we just buy a big lazy chair, a big comfy overstuffed chair, and we want to sink into it to watch the game. Settle in, sit in. It really means sit in. God's presence, as symbolized by fire, sits in those early Christians. He makes his seat in them. It's very incredible. This has never happened before in redemptive history. This has never happened before. God's Spirit has temporarily come upon people, the prophets, sometimes the kings, sometimes uh, another person, but it's always temporary. But, and it's always individual. Here in this first Pentecost, God's Spirit settles in, rests on everyone present, everyone, every follower of Christ. Not just Peter, not just John. It says all of them were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I just want to give one more um, biblical fact before we look at how beneficial this is to our everyday lives. <clears throat> and that this biblical fact is this. The, the, the very first prompting that... God's spirit, God's presence um, gives. The very first action that these early Christians uh, perform now that they're filled with God's presence is they begin to talk about God's love. They begin to talk about Jesus and the good news. And they do so in a way that everyone can hear them. And so they're speaking Galilean and everybody's hearing languages, uh, you know, their own dialect. It, it's an amazing uh, event. You know, if... if if the UN could capture this technology, uh, they could throw away all those hearing devices and, and, and cut down on the translating expenses. One person speaks and everybody hears in their own tongue. It's an amazing thing. And if you're um, an Old Testament, if you love the Old Testament, you realize that this is, this is a reversal of a particular um, judgment, a particular curse that God gives on people in Genesis 11. You remember the Tower of Babylon. The Tower of Babylon, the people... Um, are, are in this very prideful state. Let's build a tower as if we can climb to heaven. And uh, it just shows the pride and arrogance of the people as if like, hey, we don't need God. And uh, God shows judgment on the people and says, um, you're a little smaller than you think. And he, he disperses them. And when he disperses them, they move to different areas and they pick up different languages and different dialects. And now there's a disconnect. There's a... There's a, uh, there's a, a a barrier between the human race. And on this very first Pentecost, there's a reversal of that. These early Christians are speaking, and everybody is hearing it in their own language. 
It's the first sign that God is going to bless the world through the church. It was amazing. It created a huge disturbance. The people were in awe. A crowd gathered around the disciples. And they were in awe. Verse 13, uh, sorry, verse 12 says, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? They knew this was a, a catalytic event. They knew that something amazing is going on, but they, not, they weren't sure what, what it meant. They weren't sure how it was going to play out for them. And some, sort of unnerved, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Their gut reaction was to explain away the supernatural. This can't be happening. We, we, may, we may know the facts, but the facts can't be the facts. You know, they, they must be drinking. Some, like somehow drinking a whole bunch of wine would cause you to speak in various languages that everyone could hear. But their reaction brings us to a place of decision as well. When you hear this story, when you hear the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and when you hear the message of Pentecost and how God pours his his spirit out to followers, his followers, to, to those committed to following Christ, we have a reaction. We can embrace it wholeheartedly and let God's presence sit in us and make room for God's presence in us. Or we can explain it away. We can go back to our Jewish legalism. We can go back to our Old Testament, let's keep the law for righteousness' sake. I think there's a a chronic problem in the Western Christian church. And it's totally an unintentional problem. And it's caused by good desires. But the problem is this. We set Christians up at a young age to think that there is a a pecking order. That there is a a maturity process. That there is a um, not yet there um, mentality. This sort of ladder of Christian maturity. And so there are new Christians, and there are mature Christians. There are um, well-versed Christians, and there are fledgling Christians. There are people who know their biblical facts and their theological facts, and they are up on the ladder. They are up on the pecking order. And then there are people that just don't feel adequate and don't know as much Bible, and they're down here low um, on the pecking order. You know, And the pecking order has... Goes something like this: Hey, if you're a new Christian, you're down here, and uh, if if you know if you've gone through Sunday school all your life, maybe you're here, and if you've uh, volunteered in church positions, maybe you're here, and if you're an elder or, and a deacon, maybe you're here, and, and if you know, um, you know, if you're a missionary, and I'm just making up as we go, but can can you see the truth of this? If you're a missionary, maybe you're here. If you're a pastor, maybe you're here. If you're if you're uh, you know if you get your PhD, maybe you're here. And this is this this artificial pecking order that unfortunately creates this dynamic that slams the door of Pentecost shut.
without even knowing it, we create this subconscious evaluation level so people feel like they can't do anything big for God. That God wouldn't use any, anyone like them because they're on the low side of the pecking order. They haven't arrived yet. And it creates this someday I'll get there mentality and someday God will use me. That's not the message of Pentecost. That's not the message of Acts chapter 2. Look, just 49 days prior to this reading, the disciples who are ex-fishermen, the followers of Jesus who are ex-prostitutes, ex-tax collectors, average everyday people, were staring at their toes saying, I can't believe they killed Jesus. And now, they all, all of them, are empowered with God's presence. And if you read the rest of the chapter, it says these people led 3,000 folks into a relationship with their creator through Jesus Christ. They had only been Christians for five minutes. Now, I'm not against education. I've got two seminary degrees. I'm not against theology. I spend much of my time considering God and his word. I'm not against training people in both theology and Bible knowledge. In fact, my next job is solely focused on those two things. What I'm against is the deception that is pandemic in the church that the God of Acts is not the same God of 2012 America. And that the Holy Spirit, God's very presence with us, is somehow not as available to everyone Pentecost says God's presence is available to everyone, to all of us, every one of us, every one of us, every one of us. God has saved us and called us not to sit on the bench, but to get into the game. It doesn't matter if you're a mature Christian, if there even is a mature Christian. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for five minutes or 85 years. God's spirit is seated in you. You have God's presence in you. And God wants to use you to bless the world every day of your life. If you just became a a Christian just a few minutes ago when I talked about Jesus' love for us and, and sacrifice on the cross, God's spirit is with you. And now, until the day you die... He wants to bless the world through you. If you've been a Christian all your life and you're 97 years old, you should know by now that God's presence is seated in you and he wants to bless the world through you today and every day of your life. That is the message and power of Pentecost. God is a God who puts up with the crazy people like me who asks him to shut the lights off. His presence is in us. And when you become a Christ follower, his presence rests in you. And the proclamation of his glory and power starts the moment you come alive in Christ. You don't need any committee to vouch for you, to pick up your idea. God is calling you 
to bless his world every moment, every day, until he calls you home. That is true freedom. Christ has bought us freedom from sin, freedom from the fear of others' opinions, because only God's opinion counts, but he brought us freedom, full access to God and his spirit. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, Colossians 1.27 that the mystery of the gospel is this, Christ in you, Christ in you. How are we going to steward Pentecost in our lives today?